This is Mornings with Simi on 980 CKNW. Even before the pandemic hit, we were seeing a lot of changes in the business world. And one area that was seeing a lot of promise, a lot of advancement, was with Indigenous businesses really coming to the forefront. So we wanted to talk about this morning a new book that is out on that topic. It's called Indigenomics, Taking a Seat at the Economic Table. The author is Carol Ann Hilton, the CEO and founder of the Indigenomics Institute. And she joins us this morning. Thank you for being with us. Thank you. Good morning. Now, I know you've been working on this book for a while. Did the pandemic change how you approach the idea of Indigenomics? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, The book was ready to uh, publish in 2020, but I'm very convinced that it was just a year that the book did not want to be published in. (laughs) So it waited the whole year and uh, 2021 seemed a more suitable time for it. I think people have more attention and a little bit more uh, bandwidth for anything other than what's immediately in front of them within the pandemic. So how did this change your approach and your thinking on this? What will the pandemic do to the idea of Indigenomics? Yeah, absolutely. I'm asked that frequently. Um, my work is facilitating the foundation of a $100 billion national annual Indigenous economy. And um, it really... Um, got me to focus on the metrics around that and shaping the understanding of how we use data and how GDP itself is a shortcoming in uh, measurement itself and how it doesn't appropriately reflect Indigenous economic strengths. What the pandemic did was give me the space really to examine the metrics around the strength of the Indigenous economy beyond GDP and come to a larger understanding that we're closer to $100 billion than we think we are. Now, what industries uh, are we talking about here? Where has there been growth in the Indigenous economy? Uh, Absolutely everywhere. I think that the partnership development um, in resource industries, equity ownership, uh, increased capital within sectors, um, obviously the pandemic has shifted um, the... Uh, sector specifically with tourism and hospitality and foods. But I think that um, the increase in Indigenous economic activity is happening across so many sectors. Caroline, is this the way then when we talk about, you know, resolving situations with Indigenous groups, um, you know, treaties and getting that all solved for the benefit of everybody, is this the way to do it, is to invest in Indigenous businesses? Yes, absolutely. I'm very loud in my message that we need to get over measuring the socioeconomic gap that we can't every couple of years say we're still in the same place. We haven't moved very much. The fundamental structures of education, income, those aspects that are fundamental to GDP, we need to be able to understand hotspots of where Indigenous economic activity is occurring and look at places like equity ownership, capital, entrepreneurship, Um, trade, all those aspects, and begin to invest and support the structure and design of those to increase uh, further Indigenous economic inclusion and activity. Now, do you think this will happen organically, or does it need to be helped along? It is happening already. It would be helped along further with stronger um, programs and stronger systems and design of investability into the Indigenous economy. Um, As always, capital has been 
um, understated in terms of the ability to facilitate the increase of the exponential growth rate of Indigenous business. So what are the next steps here, then, when you say there does need to be some help along? What what needs to be done? Um, I think that we look here in BC, we look at examples of the gaming revenue sharing, which has allowed the ability for nations to even have something to be able to leverage against. Um, examples like uh, procurement policies within the government, um, looking at new structures or systems of capital and bringing places for collaboration and reconciliation around bringing investment into the Indigenous economy using um, the ability to demonstrate data that identifies the growth of how many Indigenous businesses there are, um, how many Indigenous economic development corporations there are, and beginning to look at what uh, investment and capitalization of the Indigenous economy can look like. Are there certain areas, Carolyn, in Canada that are kind of better at developing, you know, these Indigenous industries than others? It's a difficult um, spectrum to begin to describe because there's so many factors in terms of um, the strength of the local governance, uh, business governance, ac- access to opportunities, um, good business leadership, those aspects. But um, I recently did a what was called a virtual tour of 10 nations doing business at the billion dollar level and above. And what I'm seeing is that the increasing visibility of the $100 billion Indigenous economy is happening um, in this organic way. So whether it's nations like Squamish that have billion-dollar real estate development um, projects or LNG or major projects that are significant to the infrastructure of Canada, as well as um, inclusion of Indigenous peoples and nations within those projects in terms of larger ownership. So what do you want people to know about this book? Um, The book is important because it describes the word itself as a new concept of Indigenomics. The book is important because it centers Canada's reality of building from a truth of Indigenous economic exclusion, addressing that today and looking at the construct and structures of Indigenous economic inclusion as intrinsic to the future um, of this country and to our regions. That's a fascinating idea. Uh, Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you. I appreciate that. That's Caroline Hilton, CEO and founder of the Indigenomics Institute. The new book is called Indigenomics, Taking a Seat at the Economic Table. This is Mornings with Simi. So big news in the last 24 hours, and that is rules for visiting seniors in care homes are going to change. Province made that announcement yesterday. So let's get into the details now with the help of Isabel McKenzie, BC's Seniors Advocate. Thank you for being back with us. My pleasure. Good morning. Were you pleased to hear this yesterday? Yes, this is very good news for uh, residents of uh, long-term care assisted living and the people who love them that are now going to be able to... uh, visit them more frequently, more freely, and uh, people who've been in the care home for a year without getting their nose off the property, as we say, are now going to be able to go out for a drive with their family or uh, uh, spend a little bit of time in nature. Good. And I also heard you, as you mentioned there, it's not just long-term care homes, although that's what everybody has been saying. It's also people in assisted living, right? 
It is, although uh, certainly for the past while, uh, assisted living has been a bit different, Simi, in that there's been restrictions about the visiting in, but the people in assisted living have been able to get out and about um, in their communities just because of the different regulatory regimes between assisted living and um, uh, long-term care. What kind of an impact, Isabel, do you think this has had on people in care, unable to kind of socialize the way they had been before? Well, I think we can't underestimate the degree to which this has had a profound effect, not on everybody, but on a good number of people who live in long-term care. Our survey, which we did in September, so six months ago, uh, at that point in time, we heard from about 14,000 family members and some residents. Um, The the effects were profound. Uh, The stories were heartbreaking. Uh, Husbands and wives who, you know, for 70 years they slept six inches apart were now six feet apart once a week for 30 minutes. Um, And it, it... the, the mental health, the anguish that came through uh, from the comments of, of family members who answered that survey were, were nothing short of heartbreaking. And we also know there's been an alarm, and I don't use this word um, uh, frequently, but an alarming uh, increase in the rate of antipsychotic use. It's now 10% over the period of the pandemic. That is an extremely significant uh, uptick in the rate of use. And that reflects, I think, the impact that the pandemic overall, but to a large extent, these family separations have had on the mood and behavior of the people living in long-term care. So what does that mean then? Does that mean that people's um, conditions have been deteriorating in long-term care if we're having to medicate them more? Well, antipsychotics are used uh, as to deal with uh, mood and behaviors there. In the old days, we would call them tranquilizers. So I think what what we're seeing there uh, potentially is that when you're um, working with, in particular, the dementia population where things like familiarity and routine are very important, and in the absence of those, uh, agitation uh, can set in and, and behaviors that might not be present if they had that daily ability for their constant companion to soothe them. And also, frankly, the stress on the staffing in long-term care over the pandemic, which has made the ability to employ the uh, non-pharmaceutical alternatives to dealing with behaviors, managing behaviors, less... uh, uh, able to access because they require more time of staff. So I think it's a combination of those things. And I'm hoping that we will, uh, over the next year, see uh, a dramatic decrease in in the use of the antipsychotics. So what do you think we need to do to make sure that does happen, that we do see that decrease? Like, obviously, it's not just, okay, back to normal. Like, are there things, extra things that we should be doing? Well, we're going to be monitoring it. So, and you're quite right, Simi. It's not back to normal. Um, so, what has now changed is that uh, family members obviously are going to be able to reconnect, and I think most importantly as well is that those family members who perhaps were able to visit but only once a week for 30 minutes in a common area will now be able to return to that daily presence in the room and provide that very therapeutic. 
um, effect for some residents, it's not everybody, Mm -hmm. that has been missing. The other piece that hasn't changed dramatically yet, and we are, because we are still in this pandemic, is the uh, stresses on on the staff in long-term care. So we know there were stresses before the pandemic, but certainly um, as we work our way through the next few months, uh, we're still going to have that stress and pressure that is going to limit our ability to give the degree of personalized care Mm -hmm. that we could before. Now, family will help with some residents, but unfortunately, not every resident in long-term care is going to have a family member who's able to be that involved. They, they didn't before, and they're not going to magically have it now. But for those, uh, there will be some uh, residents who will absolutely be helped by the ability to have that more frequent calming presence of their family member. And so what should visitors remember? I mean, obviously, you know, are there signs that they should look for? Uh, are there questions that they should ask? when they're able to visit again? Well, I think first and foremost, we need to remember it's not a restriction-free world we're living in yet. So the first thing I would ask is that there still are some uh, rules for family members to follow, and I would ask that they, you know, do that, that they don't go and visit if they're sick, that they wash their hands, wear the mask, and they're going to have to schedule the visit. But I think the other thing, certainly for those who've been unable to see their loved one for a year, is to recognize that even without COVID, over the course of a year, certainly somebody in long-term care is likely going to change. And when you are seeing someone frequently, those changes are not as obvious because they happen over time. When you suddenly see someone after a year, they're going to seem more dramatic. So I think people have to be prepared for that and have to recognize that some of that was inevitable without COVID. Mm -hmm. Some absolutely will have been accelerated or exacerbated by COVID, by the separations. Yes, that is absolutely true. But I think um, it's going to be supporting your loved one, um, exhibiting joy when you see them, uh, you know, the old <laughs> the old social worker in me, don't create anxiety, don't yes. uh, don't say, oh my gosh, you look awful, or oh, this has been terrible. Uh, go with an openness and a joy uh, in seeing your loved one uh, that will translate in, uh, for them into into that the happiness and and focus on, Focus on the positive and, mm-hmm. and, and congratulate them on their resiliency and all of those kinds of uh, very uplifting messages that you want to bring. And for some, it's going to be difficult because they're going to be looking at their mom or their dad or their grandma or their granddad, and they're going to be quite distraught by what they see. Um, not everybody, uh, but, but try to, 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 to make, uh, uh, make us happy an occasion over this family reunification as you can. Yeah, that is good advice to remember. Isabel, thank you so much for your time. Okay, my pleasure, Simi. Thank you very much. That's Isabel McKenzie, BC Seniors Advocate, uh, with the new rules for visiting to long-term care, assisted living, and just the things to remember. And it's so important uh, to keep all of that in mind right now, too. This is Mornings with Simi. 
Let's talk about this new study out of UBC and SFU today that is raising concerns about how effective a single dose of the Pfizer vaccine could be in seniors. Now, we know that BC kind of led the way, for better or worse, in adopting this approach that prioritizes getting everyone a single shot of the vaccine and then talking about the second shot. So we've extended that period of time between the two doses. But are there repercussions for this? What does it mean? Joining us now is Dr. Mark Romney, medical leader for medical microbiology and virology at St. Paul's Hospital, Providence Healthcare. Dr. Romney, thank you for joining us. Oh, thanks for the invitation. So tell me about this study then. What is it that was looked at here? Well, we looked at the uh, antibody response in older people who live in long-term care after their first dose of Pfizer vaccine, and we compared it against the antibody response in healthy controls. Uh, those were healthcare workers who are working in long-term care. And we found that the, the response in, in older people was blunted. So they had not only lower levels of antibodies, but when we looked at the function of those antibodies, uh, they were also impaired. Now, that doesn't mean that they didn't respond. It's just that relative to younger, healthy people, the response was not as robust. Okay, so maybe you can explain to people who don't know, like, how critical are antibodies? Well, they are one part of the immune system, and the immune system is is rather complex, but it includes uh, antibodies, T-cells, B-cells, there's the innate immune system, and we're going to be evaluating all aspects of the immune system in our, our study. This is just a preliminary report, and it's looking specifically at uh, the serological response, that is, antibodies, uh, and we can't really say whether or not that is a protective response or not. The issue is uh, in elderly people, especially frail elderly people, even a minor infection can result in pneumonia and potentially severe outcomes. So we don't really know if this antibody response is necessarily uh, fully protective and for how long. So okay. are we putting them at risk by extending the, the dosing interval to 120 days? Usually extending the dosing interval is a good thing. You know, for young people, when you extend it uh, with a later second dose, you get a, a better boost. That's how the immune system works. Mm-hmm. But for older, frail people, uh, that may not be the case, especially when the dosing interval has been uh, extended to a period of 112 days. Okay, so then if the antibody response isn't quite what had been hoped for, what does that mean for protecting elderly, frail people from COVID-19? Well, it means we need to look at the uh, real-world public health data very closely and in real time. You know, the situation right now is is relatively unstable. Some provinces are entering a third wave. Uh, The variants of concern have arrived. Some of them are known to uh, evade the immune system as well. So a combination of a a variant of concern in an elderly individual who's near the 111 or 112-day point in the extended interval, you know, that's a risky situation. And so I think we really need to follow the situation uh, closely, not only with immunological data, like the data that we reported in our preliminary report, but surveillance data uh, and data from other jurisdictions. Okay, so what are the next steps then? Well, the next steps, I think, are just to uh, see what happens with the variants of concern that have arrived in in Canada and to look at hospitalizations and to look at outbreaks. We're going to continue to do our study as well, looking at all aspects of the immune system. This report included a relatively small number of people. We have now enrolled close to 150 
participants in the study. We're going to have a more comprehensive report in the coming months with more people and looking at not just antibodies, but also T cells, other immune uh, cells that are probably uh, broader uh, correlates of protection. Right. Dr. Romney, you know how things have been going in this pandemic, right? People will see the headline of this story, of the, of the study that you did, and they will think that seniors aren't as well protected against COVID-19. What do you want people to take away from this, though? Well, it's a, it's a complicated uh, issue, and I think the more information that we have, the more data that we have, the better decision we can make. So we can't rely exclusively on, for example, public health data, surveillance data. We know that the surveillance data are imperfect. We need all the data, all the science at our disposition to make the best decision. Okay, so if you're going to be enrolling more people, that, that all that takes time. What does that tell us about how we're approaching giving the shot here in B.C.? Well, again, I think uh, we are working actually around the clock in this research study to get the results out as soon as possible. We're getting closer to getting uh, data on uh, the second dose because some of the participants in the study did receive a second dose. And so we will be able to show, hopefully, with those data that there is a better response with a second dose with the initial uh, uh, interval that was recommended by by the manufacturer. So uh, just we have to kind of be patient. Uh, we have to be able to uh, realize that science evolves over time. Uh, also, the, the, the pandemic is, is changing over time. And I think the most important thing is just to keep an open mind, uh, uh, be aware that there are changes, expect changes, and decisions that were correct, say, a month ago may not be the best decisions uh, today or next month. So all, as you, this all takes time, as you said. Is that why it's also so important to remember all of the other things that we're supposed to be doing at this point? Oh, yes, absolutely. Now is not the time to be uh, complacent. As I said, you know, this is a relatively unstable time in the pandemic with the arrival of variants. Uh, unfortunately, in Canada, we're in a situation where not enough vaccines have arrived. It's a bit of a race between the vaccines and, and the variants. And uh, I'm optimistic that the, the vaccine programs will be ramping up uh, uh, this month, later, later next month. Uh, but it's it's still relatively unstable, and we need to be compliant with all those public health measures that have been widely publicized. So given what you've learned so far, then, Dr. Romney, would you tell the government to prioritize getting those second shots as soon as possible to elderly, frail people? I think, you know, once the uh, supply issue uh, is, is potentially resolved, and that might be the case as soon as uh, next month, depending on the situation, it would be time to reconsider shortening the interval for select populations that might not be able to mount a full immune response after a single dose, and that includes elderly people in long-term care and possibly elderly people in the community as well. The thing about being in long-term care right now is that you're surrounded by healthcare workers who are fully vaccinated. So they've almost reached basically herd immunity in long-term care. I'm concerned about the elderly in the community because the community isn't even close to levels of, of, of herd immunity. So that is something that really needs to be uh, considered as well. There are vulnerable, frail elderly people in the community, and they are not surrounded by a bubble of, of vaccinated healthcare workers. So true. Dr. Romney, thank you for your time on that this morning. Thanks for your questions. Great questions. Excellent. I always love to hear that. That's Dr. Mark Romney, medical leader for medical microbiology and virology at St. Paul's Hospital Providence Healthcare. This is Mornings with Simi. 
When we tend to think of energy sources here in BC, I think our minds go to hydroelectric energy. We talk about LNG. But why is it that for so long, geothermal has been there in the discussion, but way back? Why is it that we're talking more about the ability to tap something like geothermal energy? Well, taking a look at this now, joining us is Andy Hira, SFU political science professor and the lead of their clean energy research research group. Andy, thank you for joining us. Sure. Thanks for having me. Uh, tell me about the work that your group does. Uh, well, we work on uh, ways to promote renewable energy, and we're spe- specifically uh, trying to work with remote communities that are off-grid uh, in the global south and also in the Canadian north, uh, including First Nations communities, and helping them to develop renewable energy power. And so why is it that you think we don't talk enough about geothermal? I feel like we've talked about geothermal for years, but it just hasn't taken off. Yeah, it's very strange because we're on this uh, ring of fire that we're all familiar with, which is why we're earthquake-prone. And throughout the ring of fire, including New Zealand, the Philippines, Indonesia, California, there's all kinds of geothermal development. Uh, But in B.C., it's been bypassed. Uh, In fact, we had some initial exploration in Mount Meager uh, that was abandoned in the 1980s by B.C. Hydro. And why do you think that is? Is it because we just we figure, oh, we've got so much hydroelectricity, we have other types of energy in abundance? Yeah, I think that is the main reason, but uh, it's really myopic because we know, uh, you know, our first working paper pointed out that Site C, even with all its cost overruns, is going to be wholly inadequate when we start thinking about all the electrification that needs to be required for us to reduce our emissions. Uh, beginning with electric vehicles, Site C is not going to be enough uh, energy. So we need to start thinking about tapping other sources of energy. So for people who don't know, Andy, what is geothermal? How does it work? Well, it's uh, just natural uh, kind of heat that comes from the core of the earth. And uh, we all know that uh, directly from volcanoes, uh, but it can be tapped into. There are reservoirs throughout the ring of fire wherever you have these kind of uh, seismic shifts along the tectonic plates. Uh, as we are in the ring of fire. And where there are those shifts, there are readily available sources of heat. That heat can be used to create electricity, can be used to create hot water, heat, and it can be used for cooling. So are there places in the world where geothermal is used more extensively? Yeah, well, I've mentioned a few of them already. Uh, The most ubiquitous one, of course, is Iceland. Uh, We're all familiar with Iceland. Iceland even not only uses uh, geothermal, uh, for heat, for electricity, for cooling. It even heats up its sidewalks in winter so that it can melt the snow on them. Wow, that's a, that's a lot of geothermal energy. Yeah, that's right. So is it expensive? Like, how difficult is it to start using this? Now, the, the biggest obstacle is that uh, you really need a, a huge upfront cost to explore and uh, drill and uh, uh, make sure that you really have the parameters of a field. And that's why the private sector is not willing to go into it, because it's a very risky venture to map out a field. And that's where, you know, our paper is promoting public policies like they have in California, where the state will pay up some upfront costs for the exploration drilling, and then the private sector can come in once the resource is mapped and uh, start to use that energy. That's interesting, though, that they don't want to pay the cost up front, because with other energy sources, industries do that, right? They explore for new sources. Well, uh, we're fortunate in the sense that we have lots of oil and gas uh, wells, and those could be used as a way of exploring things. Uh, But the risks are a lot higher uh, with geothermal. The science just isn't that exact about how big the field is. Uh, Remember, with oil and gas, we've been drilling for that for over 100 years. 
uh, geothermal is pretty uh, uh, much in its infancy as a science. Are there places in BC that would this would be better for? Like, where would this be best? Well, this is uh, where we really need to do uh, the public sector to come in and do some R&D and map out uh, what are the promising fields. Um, as I mentioned, uh, in the 1980s, there were some exploration drills in Meagher Mountain. And uh, undoubtedly, you know, we know that we have hot springs uh, in various parts of B.C., uh, there are a number of places. Uh, most recently, NRCAN decided, the uh, federal government decided to put in uh, $40 million into Clark Lake in northeastern B.C. Um, so there are any number of places, including places that are off-grid in First Nations, that could use geothermal. And, and the brilliant thing about geothermal is you don't have to wait for the sun to shine or the wind to blow. It's always there, and it can be used in a much shallower drilling uh, sense directly for heat or for hot water. Um, So it can be used in a variety of places at a relatively low cost over the long term. Yeah, like you mentioned the high upfront cost, but what happens after you get that high upfront cost out of the way? Once you have that exploration and drilling down and you've identified a promising field, uh, the payoff is very comparable to solar and wind. It's cost competitive um, and it doesn't create emissions like solar and wind. Um, and it's always there for you, right? You don't have to wait for the the wind to blow or the sun to shine. So that's the great thing about uh, geothermal. It can it is it energy that can also be exported? Uh, well, in the sense that we uh, would use it to create electricity, uh, sure, we can export the electricity that way. Um, and the great thing is, you don't, uh, you know, uh, there is a big energy loss when you go from creating electricity and then use that electricity to heat up your house. With geothermal, if you use the heat directly, you don't have all that energy loss. So what are you going to do with this paper then? How do you get the attention of people to move this forward? Well, I'm hoping this will be a starting point. Um, (laughs) SFU put out a press release, and we have an active website, the Clean Energy Research Group. Um, We have a monthly forum, and we uh, present our research every month that's open to the public. Um, So people just need to check out the website. They can contact me, and hopefully we can start to uh, engage the public. And do you think, Andy, that what you need here, too, is a couple of companies, right, willing to invest in this? Like solar and wind 30 years ago probably were in a similar situation. Yeah, that's a really good analogy, and and that's why we point to California as an example. In the 1990s, they really ramped up their public support for geothermal, and now they have a very vibrant sector. And we're kind of in a chicken-and-egg phase here. Unless we have a more proactive policy, basically coming from BC Hydro, um, we have this untapped gold mine uh, sitting below our feet that we're not uh, uh, using at all. So how much farther ahead is a place like California? Oh, they're at least 10 years ahead of us. They have uh, advanced geothermal techniques. They have a vibrant uh, private sector. Uh, they're directly using the heat, and it, and they're, uh, it's contributing to their electricity generation right now. So have you had any discussions with the government about this, about the lead that you think they should be taking? Um, we've had uh, various kind of uh, behind-the-doors uh, discussions and the papers out there, and we hope this will be a starting point to try to get the government's attention Um, because the potential is there. And when we think about the future of B.C., you know, and once we get past this uh, obsession with fossil fuels and, you know, the federal government buying pipelines and investing in LNG, uh, when we actually face uh, the reality that we need to reduce our emissions, uh, geothermal has got to be in the mix. Uh, There's no question about it. I love how you're already looking past that, because you're already looking past Site C, it sounds like, at this point. 
That's right, because uh, Site C, it might uh, be good for us for about 10 years. In about 10 years, it's not going to be sufficient. Um, and it might take 10 or 15 years to develop a, a resource like geothermal. So the time to start is now. Well, thank you so much for talking to us about that today. Thank you for having me. Appreciate your time. Andy Hira is an SFU political science professor and the lead of their Clean Energy Research Group, where they are pushing the idea of geothermal energy here in B.C.